Hello, I'm Vincent Lloyd. I teach at Villanova University just outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in the Theology and Religious Studies Department. And I also direct the Africana Studies uh, program. And I'm delighted to be with uh, my colleague, uh, Norman Ajari um, here, who's a, a faculty member in the Philosophy Department and also an affiliate of the Africana Studies uh, program. We both have been thinking about the moral vocabulary of uh, Black Lives Matter, the way that racial justice movements today are articulated both in the academy and in the streets. And we both have been thinking about dignity as a key concept for uh, racial justice uh, advocacy these days. And so I'm uh, really uh, excited that the University of Toronto's Center for Ethics has given us this opportunity to talk together uh, publicly about uh, both uh, dignity in particular, but also more generally how we see uh, ethical reflection uh, uh, happening and responding to uh, uh, the movements for racial justice uh, in, in the present moment. Uh, and I, I thought uh, we might begin by just uh, uh, talking about what we mean by dignity, a, a keyword for both of us. So maybe I could ask uh, Norman, uh, you've written a book about uh, dignity <laughs> when, you, when you say that word. Yes, um, thank you, thank you, Vincent. So, yes, effectively, I, I've, I've written a, a book on dignity, and especially under um, a particular light, under the light of Africana philosophy and decolonial um, thinking, anti-colonial tradition, black radical tradition, all those kind of thing. And one of my main arguments was that there is a very distinct understanding of dignity in the black traditions, in the black political and ethical traditions. And that usually the very core concept of dignity in the European tradition means that every single human life has an inherent and uncalculable value. But usually, this universal and universally statement comes historically with exceptions, with exceptions and especially exceptions regarding race, right? You find this in Kant, you find this in Pico della Mirandola, and you find this even in more contemporary forms of understanding of dignity. This, this idea that in a way, and usually in a tricky way, uh, all human beings are not created equal, right? And I think the problem with, in order to make it short, the problem with the European tradition of understanding dignity is that dignity is understood as a um, characteristics or as a property, right? As something being has inherently regardless of history. It is something beyond time and space. It is just a property of a human being. But what I claim is that in the African and black political and ethical traditions, dignity is something we fight for, right? It is an endeavor. It is not a property. It is something which is situated within history and the easiest way to understand these dynamics is to think of when are we using this 
notion of dignity and it puts this it it, it puts us in, in the in the very middle of our conversation people right now are talking about dignity and they are just talking about dignity because we are in a situation when we are confronted with the image of black people being killed it means that dignity is not is not something that comes first it is always a response it's always an answer to the primary phenomenon which is indignity which is violence which is uh, dehumanization right dignity is only an answer it is not something that belongs to all human beings it is something that we create in order to answer to a very violent and dehumanizing situation so I, I could go on and on and on, right? But I think uh, if you 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 ask me this question, it is because you you probably want to share what you think about this this very central and very fundamental concept of uh, political and, and ethical thinking. No, I think that's that's really helpful and uh, really helps me uh, think uh, sort of understand uh, your project more and think about the way that I'm uh, talking about dignity in in, in relation to it, uh, which. Um, yeah, uh, I mean, I, I think one of the, the things I find most helpful about uh, the sort of work that you're doing in the, the, the conversation around dignity in Africana context uh, is that it's taking a step beyond the sort of historicization of dignity. So uh, Samuel Moyne and uh, Jeremy Waldron and others will talk about the way that uh, dignity once meant something uh, aristocratic, right? The, the king had dignity or the nobleman or the bishop had dignity. And, People of equal dignity could look at each other and talk to each other, but uh, someone of lower dignity, you know, would um, uh, be looked down upon or so on. You you have, have to avert your eyes when you met the, the king. Um, and then there was a transformation, a supposed democratization of dignity, when dignity moved from being aristocratic to being a, a property of everyone, right? A property that uh, was uh, inherent in uh, humanity. And, and this is supposed to be a happy story, right? Once uh, dignity was aristocratic. Now, uh, in our modern world, uh, everyone has it. Um, uh, but uh, I mean, I, I think that the correction that, that that you're offering and that, that seems right to me is that you know, uh, in that um, uh, historical transformation, there was also an exclusion, right? That's uh, in that democratic moment, dignity wasn't actually going to everyone. It was going to uh, a class of people. Uh, who had uh, 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 power and were situated in positions of privilege and others were uh, being excluded from that, that category of dignity uh, as exceptions. And I, mean, I also find um, uh, intriguing, right, the sense of dignity as an endeavor and aspiration, uh, something that uh, is never had, but is um, uh, one is, um, moving toward trying to achieve, uh, which seems appealing to me. Um, but I, I guess my uh, hesitation is uh, that, or, or at least the way I, I would think about, uh, I, I've been thinking about dignity a little bit differently is uh, as thinking about dignity in the process of struggle. So rather than dignity as what's achieved when struggle is over, when the struggle against racial injustice is over, that um, no, we, we might envision that world on a sort of eschatological horizon when there's no more domination, when uh, racial justice is over, but that's not something that we can, uh, that has any practical force in our world. What, what we find in our world are, uh, is intractable, uh, intractable forms of, of domination and 
uh, racial domination being uh, and the middle passage being a paradigm of uh, domination as such, right? Slave over master is a paradigm of domination. Uh, and so the, the, um, what uh, happens when one doesn't accede to domination, but uh, respond, but struggles against uh, domination, which is um, inevitable uh, part of being human in the genuine sense, not the hollow sense of an abstraction, uh, uh, um, humanity as a universal concept, but part of being human in a, um, a, a deeper sense than, than that is uh, uh, responding to those forces of uh, domination and, and not just, and struggling, struggling, um, uh, struggling against them. So I, I, I guess I, I wonder if you can say more about the, um, I mean, so I'm wondering if we if we have a semantic or a, a substantive disagreement here, right? So uh, whether it's um, like how you think about the temporality of dignity, is it something that's uh, achieved only when struggle is over or is it also realized in struggle? I think it's, I clearly think it is realized in struggle and through struggle. In, in, in the book, I say that uh, you, you never fight for dignity, you fight in dignity and within dignity. It is, it, it is really something that fuels a fight for equality, justice, and, thing like, and things like that. It is really, how, how I understand it, it is something, our kind of inner um, certainty, or at least intuition, that, to quote Fanon, we are for something else and for somewhere else when we are in the midst of violence and dehumanization, right? It is, it is this feeling of um, having the sense of humanity and very often a distinct humanity, right? It is not the same concept of humanity that um, the, the, the one of the, the oppressive tradition, right? But this idea that this oppression is not a normal uh, stage. It's not a normal stage of history and it's not a normal situation and um, um, a situation which is normal. Um, are, you, are, are you okay with this, with, with this position? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's really helpful. Uh, and. I don't, so um, that, that's helpful. I, I guess for me, I think it, it um, keeping distinct these two registers, one, the, the sort of temporality of the world, and the second, uh, an eschatological temporality where there's no domination, uh, which is something that um, it's important to a vision, but in um, a different register than we talk about the world. So when we're thinking about a road without uh, domination, it's you know, across a divide from the world that we have. Uh, and it's one that we need poetry or prayer or uh, some other, or uh, music or some other kind of uh, tool other than systematic thought to get it. And the, the force that it has on us, um, that world uh, without domination where all have dignity is not one that um, can give us reasons for action in the present, but rather orient us in the present. So, I mean, at least for me, keeping those two distinct um, uh, so, uh, seems, seems important. But I, I mean, I wonder if uh, uh, I could ask also about struggle, because I mean, when, when I was talking about uh, dignity last summer with an audience in the UK, 
which was almost an all white audience. There were a couple of uh, black people in the back of uh, back of the room. And one of them was a, a young man who was, a, I guess, a um, graduate student. And um, uh, he said, you know, it, it seems like you're making, um, you're, you're giving a unbearable burden to black people that our life uh, must be, you know, uh, um, oriented around struggle. And that's not a very happy life, right? How, how can there be flourishing if our task is to struggle, if that's the only way to realize our humanity? Um, so I, I mean, I, I guess my response was something like, it depends on what you mean by struggle, right? If you think of, about struggle expansively and uh, as performance, not just as um, uh, going to a rally or holding a, 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 a poster, but uh, if you think of someone like Paul Robeson who struggles in a political register, struggles in an intellectual register, and in an artistic register, you can see, at least for me, it helps think about the way that all those different registers are interconnected and are all forms of struggle. But I, I mean, I wonder how you respond to questions like that, uh, and how expansively you think of that, that sense of struggle and dignity. This is very, this is very interesting. This is a very interesting remark, right? And I mean, it, if, if it's about a recipe for a happy life, <laughs> I mean, mm -hmm. of course it's not. Obviously, it, it obvious, obviously it's not, right? And it's not, it's not an advice that you should struggle to achieve um, the, 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 life, the life you want. I mean, but the, the, the problem is we are in a situation where to be black and to be happy are usually two very... Uh, opposite concept, right? It, it's not a situation where happiness and uh, the pursuit of happiness, the famous pursuit of happiness is something that depends on us, right? Very usually, I mean, the very structure, the very core of our everyday life, of the everyday life of black people is a conspiracy against happiness in a way, right? And it's not only this very spectacular forms of violence we witnessed with the assassination of Mr. George Floyd, right? This is one aspect of it, but it is a series of humiliations. It is a series of ways people talk to you. It is a series of frustrations. It is a series of many different things which of course, one could ignore, right? Many people can ignore. But what is true is that we have among the highest suicide rates in America, right? We have the highest rates in terms of different kinds of illnesses, sicknesses. We have all those kinds of aspects, all those kind of psychological and physical diseases. Uh, we have, um, many different forms of poverty, which are plaguing our communities in the US, but also throughout Europe, right? So the question of struggle is not an individual question of how could I reach the good life, right? It is not this kind of ancient uh, philosophical morals kind of question. It is more a question about how could we achieve um, or how, how could we reach to a livable life for all those Black people?
people and all those people of color uh, of color um, in, in the in, in the Western Hemisphere, right? All, all these diasporic people which are confronted to various forms of suffering. So it yes, it's it, it's it's not about personal development development, right? It, it, it's more something of a diagnosis of our situation and of our rampant inequality and inequalities we we are we are confronting um every day and so yes i wanted I, I wanted to ask because you 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 bring up eschatology to 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 the table right do you think because we're talking about this moral and ethical vocabulary of black lives matter do you think there is an eschatological tendency within this 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 present this present moment uh, because I think it's it's always something risky right there is always a risk with eschatology and I want to hear more about it. <laughs> yes no that's a great question I, I mean I, I think the risk is about the relationship between the imagined future and the present right the risk comes when the imagined future uh, is dictating the present but is actually projections of the present and projections of the Present as contaminated by domination, right? That the the um, the desires of the present, which are not pure desires, but are desires that are tainted by not only racism but patriarchy and capitalism and other forces of domination, are um, uh, uh, orient our hope to particular objects, uh, and those are um, uh, projected into a uh, perfect future. Uh, that might be colorblind or might be, you know, uh, uh, w whatever it is. And then that perfect future is supposed to guide our action in the present. That, that cycle seems very problematic to me. But I mean, I think the shift in movement language uh, in the last few years, at least in the North American context, from hope, which was uh, at least the way, you know, the centerpiece of the civil rights movement as it's remembered uh, and as it's appropriated by Barack Obama, right, uh, the, a shift from hope to futures, right, to black futures, to imagining uh, what uh, 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 futures that are supposed to be unimaginable might look like, where there's a sense that those futures are not, um, you know, have to be, you know, a turn to science fiction, a turn to poetry, a turn to um, uh, music as ways of getting at those futures. But I mean, I think properly, um, a, a relationship to those futures that is not one of authority, but one of uh, provocation. Uh, and, and that, I mean, that, I think that's a kind of uh, eschatological imagining that seems important to me, right? We have to think about a road without domination that, that comes with the struggle against domination is, you know, uh, uh, domination's end, but doing it in a way that doesn't make the knot of domination even tighter seems, um, seems crucial. And I, I mean, I really appreciate the, the, the points you're making about the, the depths of anti-Black racism. Uh, and I, I mean, I think sometimes there can be a, um, what seems like a mystifying language of the ont ontological or metaphysical dimensions of anti-Black racism. But I, I mean, I think as you're pointing out, uh, those all have very, um, th those, um, those uh, words are pointing to uh, very concrete practices and structures and institutions. Like microaggressions are linked to police violence, are linked to mass incarceration, are linked to 
environmental racism are linked to health uh, inequities and economic uh, inequities. Uh, and it's all that together that constitutes a world and the exclusion from a, from a world. Uh, and and um, being able to both uh, think about that conceptually as sort of um, uh, anti-Blackness as having this metaphysical or ontological dimension, but always also having that very concrete um, filling out of, of phrases like that seems really useful. But I, I mean, I wonder, it seems like another aspect of uh, movement vocabulary in addition to, to futures that we hear these days uh, is Black joy. Right, which is, I mean, maybe in the way that futures contrasts with happiness, uh, futures contrasts with hope, joy contrasts with happiness, or something like that. So, where people 50 years, uh, people in the past um, in anti racist spaces would have talked about hope. Now, people talk about futures. In the past, people might have talked about happiness, and now they talk about joy. And I, I, don't, I mean, I, I think I. Uh, <laughs> Not being a very joyful person, I, I have an instinctive um, uh, aversion to, to this language. Although I mean, I, I can appreciate the, the the point of joy as fugitive, as you know, naming what happens when you're in the interstices of structure, all those things. And it also, I mean, I, um, I, I also struggle with it. I, I wonder if you you struggle with joy or what, how you see the the sort of ethical significance of, of black joy. <laughs> I, it I never, I've never, I never thought of it actually. But yes, of course, it it, it reminds me Spinoza and Deleuze and all all those kind of all those kind of things, right? This capacity, this capacity to, and and that's why I mean maybe that that, that that's why I think it's dangerous in this context to. Uh, let's say embrace this notion of joy because if I well remember in Spinoza and in this tradition, joy is a way of embracing necessity, right? It's a way of embracing necessity and a way of embracing the inevitable. It, it, it's also very Nietzschean, right? This idea of accepting the incalculable power of fate. And that's why if in our context, right, of anti-blackness, of racism, of mass incarceration, everything we've just talked about. We have to talk about joy. I think it's really untimely, right? It's not really something that, that, I, that I would recommend. I think politically, it is not something that, that, that I would embrace because I think we need to admit negativity here. We need to accept negativity and we need, I think, to push negativity to the front. Uh, of course, we have to think, as you said, of futures or even hope, but I have less issues with hope than I have with, with joy in this, in, in this sense, right? Because, yes, inherently, enjoy there is an aspect or a dimension of acceptance it is something that it is a sacred yes to the world and i have the feeling that what we what we need right now is, is a sacred no to the, to the, to the world <laughs> i don't know if, if, if it's something if, if you if you if you're on the same page about about this notion this notion of joy i i'm not i'm not i'm not i know uh, advocating for joyless world. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. But I, I think, yes, it, 
in a way, I, I, I find that there is a, a sort of a, of a, of a danger about, about this. Yeah, no, that's really fascinating because um, I mean, it, it strikes me that one of the uh, uh, um, exciting things uh, about uh, Black political and cultural spaces in the last five or so years in the North American context has been um, movements in two directions at once. Uh, one of those directions is a negativity and the you know, a deep grappling with negativity, sometimes coming from uh, scholarly strands of Afro-pessimism and sometimes from uh, the realities of Black life uh, and uh, political analysis, that, that deep grappling of negativity, that seems like one important strand. And the other seems like it, it, it's an affirmation of Blackness that resonates with, but is different from uh, earlier generations of Black nationalism uh, and Black cultural nationalism uh, from you know, a, a half century ago and, and since. Uh, just an affirmation of black life is easy to assimilate into paradigms of multiculturalism and the appreciation of diversity and the sort of uh, rainbow of you know wonderful people that all share their tasty foods and so on you know which is not what's um what's meant by it uh, but it i mean it, it does seem particularly uh accelerated by social media spaces but also in uh, organizing and activist spaces that concepts like black love black family um, uh, black rage as a positive as well as negative um, uh, emotion, um, uh, black futures, uh, uh, black magic, black girl magic. These are all sort of um, terms that have a positive uh, ways of imagining blackness, um, a, a positive while appreciated, while also having um, entangled with each of those concepts uh, in appreciation of that negativity. So I, I, and I guess I, I wonder if you see a space for, I mean, how you see affirmations of blackness fitting into that, that uh, hold, that negative um, negativity that you're, you want to affirm. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, that's, that's, that's very, that's very interesting. I think, and uh, I think maybe, maybe not, it's not entirely correct, right? But I think it overlaps with another opposition I see in the, in the present movement, both in, in the US and in, um, and in, in, in France, for instance, or in, in Belgium or in, in Europe um, at, at large. It is an opposition between two strategies in this struggle for black lives. And the first one is maybe the one which um, uh, echoes the negative one. And it is a strategy which focuses on the racial question, on the question of anti-Black violence and institutional violence. And this tradition of this way of framing the uh, present protests and demonstrations is to say that it is all about racial justice. And it is all about trying to reform subjectively and institutionally the situation of black people in those imperialist or uh, historically colonial countries. Another strategy is framed around this, I think, maybe more vague notion of social justice at large. And this idea that there is 
And there are a set of reforms that could be applied in order to change the situation and to improve the situation of uh, black people and other people, right? It's a more, a more coalitionist way of framing things. And I, and I have the feeling that this, the negative, the negative vocabulary or the negative set of conceptual tools is more rooted in the first way of framing the question. And the second one is more compatible with um, sort of coalitionist and reformist practices and perspectives. Maybe, I, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I have the feeling that what is an acceptable in a coalitionist logic, what is unacceptable in a reformist logic is precisely black negativity. That is the history of black revolutionary political practices. Something, something we've seen, right? Something we've seen in, in, these last, in, in those last few uh, weeks and months, right? Um, destroying police stations, destroying, uh, um, other kinds of places that embody power, embody this, the power of the state. Um, black people are the only revolutionary class in the, in, in, in the United States historically, and it's still the case, I think. And it, this is something we this is something we've seen. Uh, this negativity is something that even people of color are not always happy to embrace, and. This is something that puts black people, at least in America, apart of other groups, I think. It's not only about the specificity of anti-blackness, but it's also about the specificity of black politics, the specificity of black understanding of, 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 of dignity. So yes, I, 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 wanted, I wanted to know if you, if you share this, this, kind of, this, this kind of analysis and how how do you how do you understand, so to speak, the future of this movement or the possible outcomes of this of this movement in the streets? Because personally, I, I, do not, I, I do not have a clue of, of, of what of, of what's going on of eschatologically what we what we could expect. You know. Yeah, uh, no, it's helpful to hear you talking there, and uh, a lot to to think about. I mean, I, I think that our political moment and the visibility of struggle in it has been very helpful um, in the moment in the long sense, both uh, 2020 and the last you know, seven or eight years in the North American context um, has been helpful at clarifying the difference between um, liberalism and leftism, which in the left, there's been a long-standing confusion about like uh, liberals and left being used interchangeably, but you know, uh, what it means to, uh, um, uh, so th that's one helpful clarification, I think that, that, that uh, the protest movements have been pushing it. Uh, and another is between reformism and uh, revolution or reform and abolition, uh, which uh, I mean, I, I think also uh, there was a lot of muddled thinking and, and practice around uh, with the rise of the NGO class uh, and the sort of nonprofit world uh, and sort of uh, um, uh, bourgeois activism uh, over the uh, uh, in the 90s and, and 2000s, that uh, helpfully now, uh, when uh, there's a uh, w when people name mass incarceration as a problem, and uh, there's a choice: Are you going to try and make the prisons better, or are you trying to get rid of the prisons? 
Are you trying to make the police better or are you trying to get rid of the police? No, that, that's forcing a, a cleavage between two different political orientations. And it's really important to name that cleavage and, and force it uh, for, um, uh, from the perspective of those who uh, want to end anti-Black, you know, uh, who, who appreciate the depths of anti-Black racism uh, and want to call for an end to the world in which anti-Black racism is a constitutive uh, feature. Uh, so, I mean, I, I agree with that. And, and I mean, I think those distinctions between left and liberal, um, between um, uh, um, uh, where liberalism is associated with the social justice and nonprofit world, where leftism is associated with uh, organizing um, and with uh, abolition or, or uh, revolution, um, though, those distinctions also flow from understandings of temporality, the temporality of politics, right? That um, if uh, we are look, we're seeing problems in the world and trying to marshal the resources we find in the world to fix those problems, that seems like the temporality of liberalism or social justice or reformism. If we're seeing problems in the world, realizing that they're interlinked with other problems, realizing that 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 whole um, network of problems is constitutive uh, of the world or grows out of something constitutive of the, of the world. And we need to overturn that world. That's, that's um, um, and, and that overturning the world is um, possible, right? That, um, uh, that uh, kind of faith in its possibility is uh, animating um, uh, political action. That, that strikes me as a, the temporality and the orientation of, uh, sort of left or revolutionary or abolitionist uh, outlook. Um, which, yeah, yeah. And so I, I think we're, we're just agreeing around just explicating it in different terms, um, that, that um, kind of logic. I mean, I, so I, I guess I'm curious, uh, you have a very uh, unique and important perspective having um, uh, done scholarship and um, uh, political work in France and then moving a year ago to the uh, US uh, and thinking about anti-Blackness in these two different uh, contexts. I mean, in the US context, um, I, I think one really helpful shift that, uh, another really helpful shift we're seeing is um, the rejection of multiculturalism as a framework for understanding problems of race uh, and the rejection of uh, anti-Blackness as just one more in the, you know, the, the menu of social ills, one more in the, the, the section uh, of that menu on racisms, but anti-Blackness as qualitatively different from other, other forms of um, uh, racism qualitatively different from other, other forms of oppression, um, requiring a, us to set aside the framework of multiculturalism. Uh, could, could you say, I mean, is, that, is that realization happening in France as well, or are there different shifts that you're seeing in, in the French context? No, we, we, we've seen exactly, exactly the same shift. And I mean, I... I experienced it in, in, in my flesh, so to speak. As I said, I, I've been involved in activism in France for, for, for many years. And during this period of time, I, I was a member of one political party that you know, Parti des Indigènes de la République. And during this period of time, uh, some friends of mine and I, all Black, we left this political party, right? which has uh, North African leadership, right? And during this period, we, we, we felt that our interests and their interests were not aligned. They're not completely conflicting, right? But we didn't share 
the same analysis of the situation. We didn't felt the same urgency in being in the forefront in this situation. And this is something I think we really have to analyze closely, this, this notion of comparative studies in racism. Uh, this is something many scholars of, of uh, Black studies, African-American studies are, are uh, pushing forward. But I think it, it is something extremely important, extremely important to, and it, it's, it's not something about being solips, solipsistic or be, something about being, you know, uh, having this narcissism of small differences. It's really something about understanding very distinct, historically very distinct mechanisms uh, in racism, right? mechanisms of racism, of racialization, and especially the fact that what, what, we, what we realized is that we were in a, in a coalition or in a co in sort of coalitionist political group with people who didn't realize that North African countries had a very strong and still very vivid uh, history of anti-Black slavery. And that this con conditioned the way they analyzed politically the situation. And, and, and they never were never ready to admit that. They were never ready to understand that they had to ask questions about that, that our alliance or our being together was not something uh, necessary historically, right? There is no historical necessity in our uh, togetherness, that it, it was a political choice and a political strategy and a set of political tactics. And that we have to think it politically. It is not something that is due. We come from different historical um, uh, historical uh, trajectories. And I think it is something very important to understand that because very often in the militant or in the activist, uh, in, in the activist discourse, we have this idea that we should build coalition, we should be together, but what is too rarely um, answered or too rarely even questioned is what is the price for those alliances? And very often, I do not want to be moralistic about this, but very often the price is ignorance. We do not, we fail to understand, we do not want to understand what it takes, right? It is something by default. We have to be together to achieve this and that, and we do not know the historical tra trajectories of our different specific particular forms of oppression. You are in a coalition with someone you do not know anything about. Is it possible to make good politics in those conditions? I do not think so. I think we are all ready for coalition. It's not about being against coalition, but it, it is about building finding, creating the knowledge that would make all that, that would make all of us able to do it with the proper knowledge and with the proper understanding of all those uh, forms of racism on all those forms of 
rivalries um, which are plaguing our our our, uh, our coalitions and our organizing at both personal and um, um, organizational uh, uh, level within those political parties and, and those organizations and so, and so on. We do not know each other, right? Because we think, the, and we write in a way, right? We write, we're thinking in terms of being against white supremacy. We think of being against capitalism and so on and so forth. And because of that, we fail to acknowledge the power dynamics within underrepresented and, and, and demonized uh, groups. And I think this is something in a way that came from uh, the US, at least at the present moment, but it is something Fanon wrote, uh, uh, wrote about, right? The question of uh, uh, Sub-Saharan Africans and people, people from DMT, from uh, and West Indians and uh, Arabs and black people. We're just going back to asking those, those, those questions again. They are, I think, extremely, extremely uh, needed. And I repeat it, it's not, it's, not, it's not about questions of uh, being self, in, in a way self, self-satisfied with your own subjectivity, right? It is a deep organizational political question. It's extremely important. We cannot organize, build our organizing upon ignorance of uh, each other. No, I, I really, uh, that example, uh, the example that you, you filled out there uh, is wonderful in, in clarifying uh, what's at stake in, in specifying um, anti-Black uh, racism and the, the parallels with the cases. And I, I particularly appreciated um, the turn to organizing as, um, as opposed to uh, um, uh, sort of pragmatic choice or pragmatic political choice uh, in terms of how we think about these questions uh, and getting our organizing right rather than um, making the right political calculus. Because I mean, I think at least in the North American context, um, electoral politics so captures the political imaginary that it, um, everything becomes about making strategic choices here or there. You know, you're not happy with this candidate, but you're hold, hold your nose and vote for them. and uh, um, uh, sort of working with the options you have uh, on the table and it being about you, about an individual looking at these choices and then choosing, oh, this is what I'll do now. Okay, for this, this moment, I have to sort of, um, see what the context is, make a choice and then you know, uh, go to this protest, for example, or make this intervention. Whereas organizing, you know, uh, the, the framework of organizing puts the emphasis on it's always a collective, right? It's not, not just me choosing, right? It's us uh, working together and figuring out who that us is and um, where the, um, when that us needs to cleave, when it needs to come together, right? Uh, those sort of strategic calculations are made as, um, a, as a um, first person plural, uh, thinking about organizing rather than as an individual thinking about, you know, um, making an intervention. I, I, I know our time is running, <laughs> running down here, but I, I feel like w when um, there are conversations about uh, both black negativity and the affirmation of, of uh, blackness, the uh, the way that white audiences respond um, often is uh, in one of two ways. One of which is um, a, a, a kind of um, 
desire prompted by the exotic or something like that, or like that, that negativity is so, um, uh, is something enticing about it, right? Uh, black negativity that uh, white audiences feel and are, are attracted to, um, which doesn't result in any action, right? Uh, uh, maybe uh, criticism, maybe some kind of analysis, but um, uh, there's a, a sort of weird libidinal dynamic that happens there. And the other um, sort of response is the response of the social justice advocate or reformist saying, okay, I, I can appreciate, I need to think more deeply about anti-Black racism, and now what do I do, right? Now, uh, how, how do I go about um, making the, the, um, the, the next calculation in order to make things slightly better? Um, so I, 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 mean, I wonder uh, what you tell white audiences <laughs> or when they read your book and say, what, what should I do next? <laughs> I've, I've heard, there is something I there's an, there's an answer I like. It is the um, traditional. I don't know if if, if it's if it's even a tradition, but I, I like the Afro pessimist answer to 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 this kind to this kind of question, right? I I, I like it. Uh, but I have two questions. I have an, I have a regular question for for uh, for instance in in the in the French in, for the French audience, and I have um, an Afro pessimist answer. I, I, I prefer the for pessimist one, and, 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 and I, I will, I'm going to give it to you first. Uh, the answer is, of course, usually, usually, it is a way this asking for reform, asking for uh, asking for for answers, is a way of shutting um, people up, right? It's a, it's a way of silence. Us, I think, in a way, because it is very rare to go to the bottom of these problems, right? It's, it is very rare to be able to discuss the extent, the extent of anti-blackness lengthy. We, 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 as I said, for instance, questions about um, anti-blackness in um, within the North African community in France or in other parts of the world, it is not a conversation we have very often. It is not a very common conversation, but it is a conversation about anti-blackness in a context where it matters, right? It matters for a lot, for millions of people. It comes for millions of people, but we, we do not talk about that. It's the same about police violence, police brutality. We do not know the extent of it. And there are many, many examples of it. It could be, or it should be, a very, very long conversation, especially if we talk about the situation of Africa, if we talk about Pan-Africanism, if we talk about uh, exploitation, neocolonialism, all of those are forms of anti-Blackness. We should think of all those aspects together, and it is a very long and very difficult task to see what are, to, to say or to ask immediately, what are the answers, what should, what should be done if we do not grasp the problem, if, if we do not, if you do not have an understanding, an understanding of what the problem is, is maybe um, not the right thing to do. Uh, we should try to map our situation first. But I think, and that's the the second the, the second possible answer. Sometimes I I I, I, I propose something. I I, I have things to, I have I have little ideas, stupid, silly ideas, right? But could ideas that could be strategic 
and useful strategically at a very specific moment. For instance, in France, I, I, I tried to uh, initiate a debate. It, it was not, well, it, it's, it's a start, right? Some people answer, some people start, started thinking about this. There is, there is no uh, habeas corpus in France. It doesn't exist. Any cop can ask you for your uh, passport, for your ID at any moment. And of course, uh, black and brown men are predominantly targeted by this kind of arbitrary, what is called what arbitrary stop and frisk policies, uh, identity control in France, how it is called. And I propose to abolish this, this thing, right? This procedure, which is, and it is documented by the, you know, which is documented that it is absolutely unuseful, right? It only sanctions um, infraction that the, the control in itself, the stop and frisk in itself causes, because it causes out, outrage, rebellion, it causes people to protest, and because of it, that they get arrested and they, they, they go to jail, etc. This is, I think, a purely unjust, right? A purely, uh, a, a purely sadistic policy, which is pervasive in French, and that could be abolished. Because I think it is a way of starting a conversation about abolition, talking about something pity, but realistic. And um, I mean, it is nothing, right? At first, at first sight, it's nothing. It is not something revolutionary. It is pure reformist politics. But maybe in the French context, and in the situation of French policy, it would be a revolution. It is a way of, I think, starting a debate that could lead us uh, uh, forward. So yes, I think, and maybe I, I, I will be criticized for it, but I think it is good to have both, you know, like two hemispheres in the brain, right? The reformist one, and the, 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 the revolutionary one, so to speak, right? Try to be reformist with revolutionary purposes. I, I think it is something very important to something that the, the black radical tradition always tried to do, right? To, to, to try to, to be within the kind of politics you brilliantly described, right? This kind of politics which asks us to vote for this guy, that, that, that guy, but also to do it for something, something more. But usually, well, it, yes, it's not, it's not, it's not necessarily the, 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 the right path because it's possible to, 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 to fall into the, the traps of this institutional politics. But I think it's, it's good to be, to be heard, right? It's necessary be heard in the, the, the context of our uh, liberal democratic parties. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that uh, habeas corpus exa example is uh, a useful one uh, in that um, more and more discussions uh, in the North American context now are happening around, you know, how do you identify a reform that is reformist versus a reform that is abolitionist? Because abolitionists mm -hmm. do things, right? They don't just say, get rid of the system, right? they advocate for uh, particular changes in the world, uh, and uh, Miriam Kaba and others who've been developing, um, you know, the mechanisms for identifying a, a reformist reform between uh, and a non-reformist reform, and 
uh, thinking about reforms that shrink the system versus reforms that grow the system, reforms that you know add funding or resources to the police or um, uh, the, the uh, criminal justice system um, or, or the prison system versus reforms that are um, uh, shrinking in whatever way those those systems seems like a, a, a really helpful um, discussion to be having. And, and um, I, it's a happy moment when we're having that discussion about how to distinguish between a reformist reform and a non-reformist reform, rather than when we're you know, thinking within a horizon set by reformism. I, I mean, it seems like one of the very best things that, that um, one of the um, most joyful <laughs> things about our political moment is that reformism is no longer so hegemonic in the, in the um, political imagination in the mainstream, I mean, it's entering the mainstream that, that, that reformism has its limits is entering mainstream political discourse, whereas before it was sort of fringe left spaces where, uh, at least in um, the US, where uh, uh, revolutionary abolitionism or sort of um, uh, genuine leftism were uh, uh, political, uh, political uh, discourses. Yeah, and, I mean, and it's helpful to hear as well about the, the um, your responses to the sort of question from um, uh, white readers and listeners about what they are to do. I, and I, I guess um, it strikes me that the best ethical and political formation happens uh, in struggle, right? that one's judgments are refined, one's ability to identify domination and power and to map out um, the, the machinations of power, uh, those abilities um, grow the more one struggles against domination. Um, uh, but uh, I, I guess I worry that um, uh, activism, sort of speaking out on behalf of uh, someone else over there who is oppressed, does not have that same uh, ability to, uh, to do the work of ethical and political formation that um, participating in uh, self-emancipation uh, has, right, that struggling for yourself and your people uh, to be liberated right, has this um, ability to do ethical and political formation. And um, uh, that's something that uh, the uh, Black folks in the, the struggle for Black liberation are um, uh, uh, seeing. And it's hopefully shifting the broader political discourse. But I mean, I, sometimes I wonder whether there um, you know, uh, while having uh, white co-conspirators or allies uh, is uh, uh, useful uh, in black struggle, um, uh, if there are might be other, you know, rather than white people uh, coming in to be helpful in black struggle, whether um, in addition to being helpful, uh, doing some analysis on forms of uh, other forms of domination. <laughs> Uh, patriarchy and capitalism and uh, 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 homophobia and uh, uh, ableism that also infect the world uh, and that uh, many of us also, um, uh, that white folks themselves, uh, th th there are instances where white folks themselves are, uh, can participate in struggles for their own and their people's um, uh, liberation where the we there is not whiteness, but the we is some other category disabled or uh, uh, women or something else. And, um, yeah, it, it seems like a difficult question and one that uh, mm -hmm. we're, we're talking through. It's been 
wonderful uh, chatting uh, for the last hour. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Look forward to continuing the conversation. Mm -hmm.